Hello and welcome again to another SINTS episode, S-I-N-T-S, Studies in the New Testament with Seamus. I am your host, as always, Seamus. Where we left off last time, we were going through Mark. We got about halfway through chapter one. We're going to pick up where we left off. I just want to double back a little bit to verses uh, before we continue. We left off after verse 22, so I'm going to back up to verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. Right away on Shabbat, he entered the synagogue and began to teach, and they were astounded at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the Torah scholars. Uh, and I had mentioned previously that uh, this was unusual. Usually a rabbi, a Pharisee especially, would always credit all of his teachings, and he would do so by, you know, saying, uh, you know, Rabbi Hillel the Great said in the name of you know, from this rabbi and this teaching and so on and so forth. And they would always uh, go back uh, two or three rabbis to uh, um, give credit, you know, to credit their teaching and basically source all of their material. Much like we do today when we try to source our paperwork um, or anything like that. If we got information that we didn't come up with on our own, we have to source it. Otherwise, it's plagiarism. So this is the same with typical rabbinic style of teaching. And uh, I already went over that this is the exception of the rule for, you know, he's teaching without this particular style, which implies that he himself has his own authority, uh, which is a little different, which is why it's surprising. It's why it's why they make note of it here in Mark. And so now we can move on. Just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have we to do with you, Yeshua of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Okay, so they're in the middle of synagogue, Um, and who knows if this happened immediately after the teaching, or even uh, if he interrupted the teaching. Uh, The the passage is not clear, Uh, but either way, a man with an unclean spirit. Okay, so yes, this usually does mean demon possession. However, I should note that in the first century, a lot of sicknesses and health issues were attributed to unclean spirits, Um, and that was just the mindset of the people at the time. Of course, now today we have modern medicine, and we can find out that a lot of reasons for uh, people to have a certain condition is, you know, physical or mental in some way, shape, or form. Um, And so sometimes you'll see healing the sick put together with casting out demons. In the Hebrew mindset, this is generally the same thing. So... Keep keep that in mind. Uh, obviously, here the spirit uh, is an unclean spirit that is able to talk through his vessel, his human host, and so we know for a fact this isn't this is in fact the demon possession, and um, and so he talks back with with Yeshua. So Yeshua rebuked him, saying, "Quiet, come out of him." And the unclean spirit, after throwing the man into a convulsion and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. What I like about this is Yeshua doesn't even bother to entertain the conversation. You know, the the demon basically asks a series of questions and and, uh, Yeshua answers none of them. He's just like, shut up, come on out. (laughs) And I like that. It's it's very interesting and very simple. And um, this is basically the formula for an exorcism um, 
as it should go. Obviously, the the glorified uh, Hollywood version of the exorcism done as done by a Catholic church is a little t- is taking some liberties with uh, the scriptural version of an exorcism. Um, but with the proper power and authority, uh, it should be as simple as this. And the, disi- the, the disciples have this uh, same power and authority. They, they do it basically the same way, very easily. Um, the one time they actually run into an issue is when Yeshua is still around and uses that as a teaching moment. We'll get there when we get there. But, yeah, so this, he, he basically he says, shut up. He doesn't entertain him. He doesn't ask any questions back. He doesn't answer any of his questions. He just... Uh, basically completely blows him off uh, and the man falls into a convulsion and then the spirit leaves him moving on they were also amazed that they asked them on themselves what is this a new teaching with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him and immediately news about him spread through the regions surrounding Galilee okay so for some context it is said that King Solomon uh, had mastered the art of exorcisms (laughs) And so, to the point where, you know, Solomon could do it basically in this way, that he could get it done very quickly. And the, the mark of an exorcism shows the approval of God's authority on that particular person. And so, again, that's why they bring this up, you know, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Um, basically, they are witnessing... Uh, God's holy stamp of approval and they're and they're seeing that right before their eyes uh, and that's why it's it's phrased in, in such a way in Mark um, because it is it does stand out Mark as he's writing the gospel um, the gospel is technically anonymous it doesn't say that Mark wrote it but we will continue moving forward uh, with uh, just saying Mark for simplicity's sake but Mark um, does not want you to assume that this was normal uh, he wants you to know that this is an abnormal thing. So so he decides to write it in such a way to phrase the questions. Uh, in, and again, the way they recorded history back then is not necessarily the way it exactly happened. Usually they would record history in a way um, that you can relate to it. And sometimes they would record that history in parallel with another story that the people are familiar with so that they can see the parallels of said story uh, and relate to it that way. Mark may be doing the same thing here. One, one example of this way to record history actually is the book of Maccabees uh, with Antiochus Epiphanes and the whole Hanukkah story. Um, the entire book of Maccabees is written eerily similar to that of the story of Jonathan and David. Uh, it's it's basically written as though the writer of Maccabees thinks that you already know that story and is purposefully pointing you to that story so that you can relate to the two things. As, as Maccabees is basically trying to show that this is God's stamp of approval by drawing these parallels. Uh, now whether those actually happened exactly like that in the parallels is up for debate and it's actually, it's actually why Maccabees is in the Apocrypha books and not... Um, not considered scripture. Uh, that and it was written in Greek, and to a uh, to a Jewish man, uh, no Greek writing could ever be considered scripture. And so, and that's another thing you should keep in mind too when it comes to the Septuagint, which we'll get to pretty much uh, later on when we start quoting other passages um, that are coming from the Septuagint. The Hebrew people did not consider the Septuagint to be authoritative; it was just a translation for the rest of the common world because Greek was the common tongue at the time. 
So, uh, going back, a, uh, a new teaching with authority, he commands even the unclean spirit. And so this is kind of hearkening back, like, like I said, Solomon had basically mastered the art. So hearkening back to this whole line of David, heavenly authority, God's stamp of approval, this is a prophet standing before you. And Mark is trying to draw that out by asking these questions. It's possible that the people actually did ask these questions. Um, but more or less, these questions are actually in here rhetorically, so that Mark wants you to ask those same questions, to come to the same conclusion that he has. And it's just the way that they recorded history back then. So I'll move on. Uh, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with Jacob and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. Now Simon's mother-in-law was laying sick with a fever. Right away they told Yeshua about her. He came and raised her up by taking her hand. The fever left her, and she began to take care of them. <laughs> All right. I'll, um, so uh, the, the typical to Hebrew box logic, um, and again, typical to the way that they recorded history back then, it's not necessarily linear. Uh, usually when people would record historical events, especially in the Hebrew thought process, they would actually file them in such a way um, that you could categorize the, the entire piece of work. So that, basically that's to say this section is going to deal with healings. And so Mark is going to record a various selection of healings in this section. And it's possible that these healings did not happen sequentially like this, you know, back to back to back. Um, but rather that uh, Mark is going to categorize this section as the section for healings. And then he's going to move on and uh, at some point and move to a different section of teachings where we have like the example of the Sermon of the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, excuse me. The Sermon on the Mount likely was not a single ser uh, sermon. It's likely a collection of teachings from him teaching on the mountain. And when Matthew goes to record it, he takes all of those teachings and throws them basically under one big section. And so it's likely it was a collection of teachings and then it uh, because it's recorded in a way that we're not used to as, as a linear-minded, you know, Greek-minded um, uh, Western thinkers, we think it all basically happened all at once as one big event. Um, but likely that's not the case. So that's going to be reminiscent in the book of Matthew as well. You're going to see a lot of this categorization, and that is the biggest reason why the four Gospels don't record all of the same events in the same order. Because again, the way they recorded history back then, they were not necessarily uh, worried about the order in which events happened, just that they happened. Keep in mind also, these are not historical documents. These are, in fact, religious documents. <laughs> these are documents meant for the religious mind. So it is a collection of teachings, and it's designed to be a collection of teachings, not a chronological timeline of events historically. None of the gospel writers themselves were historians. And so keep, keep that in mind. We, we are going through the gospel of Mark as the historical, um, from the historical lens as a historian. And that is an important part to understand. You have to know what the genre of the document is that you are reading. And this is not a historical document. We are not trying to read a timeline of events. So this is more of a collection of events and teachings, and they're going to be out of order, and that's fine. Uh, in fact, the Torah is the same way, the first five books, the books of Moses. Um, the Torah re records events 
constantly outside of linear order. Sometimes you'll get details that happened later on from, a, from an event that happened earlier on. And so it will, it will repeat the same story, but with different details or more expounding details to kind of give you a better picture of what happened. And that's just the way that they recorded things back then. Again, it's not a difficulty. It is a style because these are not historical records, so to speak. They are Now they are historical records, but they were not meant to be historical records at the time. Uh, so we will continue reading with that in mind. So that being said, we're going to read a, basically a bunch of collections of these healings that, that happen. Um, and so verse 32, When evening came at sunset, the people brought him all the sick and those who were afflicted by demons. Again, demons, unclean spirits, and sickness were basically synonymous with each other back then. Uh, the whole town gathered at the door. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not allow the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Uh, going back to his authority here, Mark is trying to remind you um, that even the demons know the identity of the man standing before them. Um, so Mark is, again, trying to get you to conclude this is in fact the Messiah. <laughs> Very early, while it was still night, Yeshua got up, left, and went away to a place in the wilderness. And there he was praying. Then Simon and those with him hunted for Yeshua. And when they found him, they said to him, Everybody's looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go somewhere else to the neighborhood towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also. This is what I came for. And he went throughout all the Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and driving out demons. All right, so actually, we're about to get into this neat little section. Um, you just got a little warning of what's about to happen next. Yeshua wants to leave because he isn't, it's not because he's like tired of healing people, he's tired of doing good things. He wants to leave because he wants to be able to teach his message, and he does not want to waste all of his time in, in the healing process and not be able to actually teach the message. So to help avoid that, he's going to spread out um, and go somewhere else and actually start this teaching, this message spreading process. Um, another thing is as a because of the political climate at the time, it's also likely that Jesus did not want to create this massive uh, cult-like following where the Romans might mistake it for a revolution or an uprising. And so, because um, <laughs> then his ministry would have ended much faster, right? If the Romans thought of him as a, as a revolutionary threat, then uh, he would have been killed, you know, long before. So... I think what he's trying to do is actually keep that from happening and keep his ministry very small and unthreatening so he can get the message out, focus on his disciples, and and do what needs to be done to fulfill the prophecies without starting a revolution accidentally. So you, you got that, so that I may proclaim the message there also, this is what I came for, right? So that's, that's what he's... Basically, the next section is actually a clearer... Um, indication of this mission. So verse 40, a man with Sara'at comes to him, begging him and falling on his knees. Okay, so Sara'at, my translation, I'm using the Tree of Life version translation. Um, Sara'at is the Hebrew word for leprosy, but leprosy that we know today is not the biblical leprosy. The leprosy in the biblical times was a little different. In fact, 
um, it, it's described in the Torah as something that walls could have or fabrics. So fabrics could have leprosy and the walls could have leprosy. So it might have been like this mildew, rotting uh, kind of unclean issue. Um, so it, it's not necessarily the same leprosy that you and I are familiar with. It's probably a different one. And that's actually why my translation decided to leave the word as sara'at and not translate it as leprosy. To let you know, uh, again, this is a translation a little bit more geared towards that Hebrew mindset. And, and Hebrew speakers and Hebrew, um, I guess, minded and religious Hebrew people know that sara'at or uh, leprosy is, is not actually leprosy. So this was translated by a team of Hebrew minded uh, uh, scholars. And so this translation, you have to know that going into this translation. Um, and so that's one of those things. I, I, I like that they left that translation there because it makes you want to question, especially if you're not super familiar with this idea of leprosy. You may look at it and think, oh, it's leprosy and then leave it at that. Um, or it may make you want to you know, sit there and think, oh, why did they decide to not translate it? Why did they decide to leave it transliterated? Um, and, you know, that, they, that may lead someone into uh, deeper studying of what leprosy was biblically. So I'm going to take this moment to encourage you to do exactly that. Go and look into the biblical leprosy. What is it really? What are the laws that surround it? Um, and everything, you know, because it's, again, not the same type of leprosy that we're familiar with, although, you know, starkly related to that leprosy. Um, starkly, probably not the right word, but definitely related to our version of leprosy, but not the same thing. Um, and in fact, uh, there's a, uh, a rabbi from Chabad.org. He has a, a unique set of videos. I think he calls it Messiah Cafe, Mashiach Cafe. Um, and he actually goes over this, this whole problem with leprosy. Mostly because there's a section in the Talmud uh, that talks about the Messiah being named the leper of the house of study. And it comes from the Isaiah passage. Actually, hold on. I have a... I have a copy of that Talmud here. Uh, let me go ahead and open it. Um, it's from uh, Babylonian Talmud Sanhedrin 98b. Um, and it reads, And the rabbis say his name is the leper of the house of study. And the house of the rabbis say the sick one, as it is said in Isaiah 53 verse 4, Surely our sickness he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And uh, so Rabbi Mendel Kaplan is his name. He he has a series called Moshiach Cafe, and he goes over what leprosy is and why the Messiah would be called the leper of the house of study. Um, and it's a great series. Definitely check that out. It's like five videos, I think. They're all like 10 minutes long. Great great video though and it's basically two rabbis just having a conversation and one uh, rabbi mendel kaplan more or less leading that conversation um, but understand that um, this idea of leprosy and attaching it to the messiah is actually a big thing uh, coming specifically from that isaiah passage and so what i'm about to get into now we're going to uh, look more into that but for now um, instead of going into what leprosy is, I'm just going to roll with it and continue using the word leprosy uh, for the sake of simplicity. Okay. Uh, and falling on his knees, saying, if you are willing, 
you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Yeshua stretched out his hand and touched him. He said, I am willing to be cleansed. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Okay, so I want to pause because the writer of Mark actually does a pause also. Um, the, the Greek, the style of Mark is very to the point, very quick. It's, you know, let's get down to business kind of. He just jumps right into everything, and, uh, you know, his versions of the story is very short, sweet, and to the point. And here, the language seems to slow down in the Greek. Um, it, it's instead of just, you know, Yeshua saying words and it's, and it's done, or even the writer of Mark saying that, yeah, he does it and it's good, he actually slows everything down and he says, moved with compassion, Yeshua stretched out his hand and touched him. That's the slow down part. Why, why, why would you need to necessarily say stretched out his hand and touched him? It's as though he's, m you know, making you stumble here, like a stutter step kind of thing over the redundancy of the words. And he said, I am willing to be cleansed. And immediately the, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Yeshua did not need to touch the man. He could have simply said the words and it would have been done. So then why does he touch him instead? See, when Yeshua touches a man with leprosy, he bores uncleanliness upon himself. He, he contracts this un, this ritual uncleanliness uh, because the lepers, uh, uncleanliness can be contagious even if you do nothing wrong. Uncleanliness, again, is not sin. It is a state of being and multiple things can cause it. Some of those things are outside of your control. Some of them are within your control. And this is one of those things that would be within your control. And first century Judaism was obsessed with purity laws. And so it would have been social taboo to touch this man because then you yourself would have inherited or contracted this uncleanliness. And especially for somebody like Yeshua, it's not necessary, not necessary anyway, so why bother? And that's kind of what the writer, I, I believe, why Mark changes his language here. He's trying to make you ask that same question. And um, I think later on in, in the Matthew um, manuscripts, it actually clarifies uh, using the Isaiah passage, whereas Mark does not. Like a typical um, you know, Jew, he, he's actually going to assume that you already know what's going on. And Matthew, also like a typical Jewish writing, uh, will clarify um, based on a, another account. If you've ever read a Talmud, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But, so he, he touches him and he... And he and he becomes unclean. Now, it's not a problem. Yeshua can simply get baptized, go, go through a, a ritual mikvah, and, he, and, it, and he's done. You know, he doesn't have to worry about being unclean anymore, and he would have done this every day anyway upon entering the temple complex. <clears throat> complex, excuse me. Because in order to go onto the temple complex, you would have to go through a ritual immersion uh, just to make sure that you were cleansed before you walk onto holy ground. Um, and so even if Yeshua was never, ever, ever unclean, he still would have done it. He submitted himself to those authorities in that way. Um, and as we see here in a second, he continues to uh, uphold those authorities at the temple. But it's not a problem. He would have simply done a baptism real quick and then um, go back under the temple mount and he's, he's all good. you know. Um, so it's not really a big issue. But the reason why it's being brought out here in this text is to make you 
um, see that he is going to, he, he basically took on the uncleanliness of a leper. Right, so now, now he's basically going to be treated as though he himself were a leper until he gets cleansed. So now we have this picture from Isaiah, the leper of the house of study. Yeshua being a rabbi, graduated from a house of study, likely under the feet of Hillel or, or his grandson Gamliel. Um, more, more likely Hillel, because uh, Gamliel was Paul's teacher, and Paul doesn't say that he knew the Messiah, so it's more likely that Hillel uh, was, was his teacher. But he gets his uh, official ordination and everything, so he is a member of the house of study. He is a rabbi. He is, in fact, a Pharisee. And he takes willingly upon himself the uncleanliness of the leper. So this would be, in essence, a fulfillment of being called the leper of the house of study, which is talked about in the Talmud. And it's drawn out from the Isaiah passage. I will, I will move on. Um, Yeshua said to him, uh, no, excuse me. Yeshua sent him away at once, sternly warning him, saying, See, see that you say nothing to anybody. But go show yourself to the priests. Then for your cleansing, offer what Moses commanded as a testimony. But he went out and began to proclaim and spreading the word, so much that Yeshua could no longer enter a town openly, but had to stay out in the wilderness. Still, they kept on coming to him from everywhere. Okay, so I think uh, I talked about this a little bit before. Yeshua is trying to avoid this um, inability to teach his message by being overwhelmed with the healing aspect of his ministry and so you know the question why would he say don't tell anybody well probably again to not accidentally uh, think that the romans are uh, going to be threatened with an uprising um, yeshua is not a revolutionary figure uh, a lot of people think of him as a revolutionary figure as a basically you know he he may he may have been a zionist you know um and you know, one of one of Yeshua's follower, followers that I'm that I can think of right now, Judas Iscariot, he was actually a Zionist, um, and that's actually one of the reasons why he may have betrayed, uh, chosen to betray Yeshua, was because he thought that Yeshua might have uh, come to start the revolution and end the occupation of Israel. And when Yeshua doesn't do those things, he gets upset and he you know betrays him. That's a possibility because he himself was a member of the militia that would have uh, wanted to start the revolution. But Yeshua is clearly not here to do that. He is here to teach a message for the house of Israel, for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Healing can definitely be a part of that, but he does not want to overshadow his message and smother it with nothing but healings so that he's unable to actually teach that message. And that's why he tells him to don't tell anyone. And, and he also noticed... He tells him to submit himself to the authority of the temple. Go to the priests and do what Moses commanded. It's interesting. Why would he have to tell him to do that? Because it would have been common knowledge for any leper that was, that was no longer struck with leprosy to have to go to the temple and be declared clean. So that's the thing. Only the priest can declare a person clean of leprosy. But here, Yeshua specifically said be cleansed so it's possible that yeshua actually cleansed the man however that would have superseded the authority of the temple and so yeshua makes a very clear indication here you still have to go to the temple and do the cleansing ritual to be officially cleansed 
show yourself to the Kohen, offer the offerings that Moses commanded. Still do these things because he is still subject to the earthly authority that God has established here. The Kohen, the priesthood, is a earthly establishment that was promised to them forever until heaven and earth pass away. So even if Yeshua had actually cleansed the man, as it made him officially clean, it cleansed him from his uncleanliness, he is still telling him to go to the priest to have it done um, properly with the right authority as a testimony to them. Uh, now, who's the testimony for? That's actually up for debate. A lot of people, you know, the testimony is to the priests or the testimony is to the Pharisees or to the people. Um, you know, I'm not here to really give my opinion on that, but I am here to say uh, as a historian that he is uh, submitting himself to the temple authority and he is encouraging others to do the same even uh, amongst all of the miracles and healings that are happening. Okay, and so that actually puts us at the end of chapter one. We finally made it through a whole chapter. It took two episodes. That's probably going to be normal on this series. Um, and so uh, who knows how many episodes this will be before we get through the book of Matthew. But uh, I hope um, these two episodes you know, have offered an introduction to what kind of content we're going to get into here, the kind of learning um, and historical context that we plan to offer you, as well as the historical credibility aspect, because Mark is the oldest written gospel. Um, and so we are, we are going to approach this strictly from that historical standpoint, uh, so that, you know, if you, if you should get into a conversation with somebody that's very much a stickler for the historical facts, you can actually basically just argue all of your points from the book of Mark. Um, and then any other outside sources like Matthew and Luke, which are part of the synoptic gospels to help uh, confirm with multiple attestation. And then John, uh, not a synoptic gospel, but uh, still a, another source of attestation that you can draw from. Um, okay, so next uh, week we will pick up with Mark chapter 2. Thank you so much for uh, listening. This has been Studies in the New Testament with Seamus, or Since for short. <laughs> and uh, you have a blessed rest of your day. Shalom Aleichem. <laughs>